Hello and welcome to the Wish Podcast. I'm Sean Kaplan. And I'm Grant Bush. Today we'll be chatting about pain with Manan Ram. Manan is a physiotherapist and a pain specialist with a great deal of clinical and research experience. He has a master's degree in pain science and is currently in the final stages of working on his PhD through the University of Miami. He also has vast experience working in the field of pain management in South Africa, the UK and the USA and has accepted a post as a postdoctoral research fellow at Harvard University. Manon will be chatting to us from Miami today. So Manon, thank you for joining us from half a world away. Thanks for having me. Um, I really appreciate the invitation. It's good to be here. I'd like to start us off on pain in general. So pain is not an accurate measure of the health of our tissues. And if we shouldn't be considering it to be a damage meter, how should we be thinking about pain? And what are the messages that we should be giving to our patients when they are in pain? Well, I think you've got to firstly separate if you're looking at acute pain versus chronic pain. So if you have patients that come in with an acute injury and it's a visible acute injury, example, ankle sprain, meniscus uh, tear, anything like that, that is an evident tissue injury, obviously that is going to have different mechanisms underlying the input into the nervous system and how the brain interprets the message. And generally in an acute injury, the brain is going to say, hey, I need to look after this tissue and I need to lift my leg and stop weight bearing and do all of those things. So acute pain is obviously protective in nature and we need it. In comparison to chronic pain, chronic pain obviously is pain that has lasted for longer than three months, three months or more. Some people say six months or more. I go by the three months or more. And sometimes there still is evidence of tissue damage or tissue injury. But most of the time, within that time frame, tissue is healed. And there is no evidence of any sort of tissue injury or anatomical injury. So you might do ultrasounds at that point in time or MRIs or x-rays and see absolutely nothing showing up. However, the patient is still stating that they are in pain. So the main thing about chronic pain is it generally does not correlate to any visible tissue damage. But what it really is, is about the processing in the peripheral nervous system, the central nervous system, the brain and how the brain is interpreting the messages coming up to it and how the brain sends an output of either pain or no pain. So what's really important for patients to understand is that pain is an output from the brain rather than a sensory input into the nervous system. There is no such thing as pain nerves. Pain nerves do not exist in any person. But what we do have is what I'm sure you guys know are nociceptors. And nociceptors are specific nerves or neurons that send a message up to the spinal cord, up to the brain, saying there is actual or what's really important, potential tissue damage and it's for the brain to take those that message and decide whether or not that person is in pain or is not in pain or allows the the, the patient to say well 
you're going to experience or perceive pain in a certain way. I hope that makes sense. Marlon, you mentioned earlier the difference between acute and chronic and, you know, chronic being pain that's been longer than three months. And so recently, in the last couple of years, there's been a a change in terms that's been used in some of the literature and, and a lot of the papers are talking about nociplastic pain to sort of try and address that that topic. So as far as I understand it, nociplastic pain is pain that has outlasted the time that it takes for the injured tissues to heal. And there can be many different physiological causes for nociplastic pain to develop. And asking, you know, how that develops, that's a very open-ended question, and that would take us days to answer. But what, what I think we can discuss now is how can clinicians reduce the risk of this type of pain developing in their patients and in the athletes that they might be treating? So that's, that's a great question. So nociplastic pain is a new term that's come about in, in pain medicine and pain literature. And it really encompasses also the term of central sensitization. Some people still use the term central sensitization. Some people still go, have gone right to the term of nociplastic pain. But I like, I like the term nociplastic pain as an umbrella for central sensitization because I still believe that central sensitization is an integral component to the pain experience. But nociplastic pain is a nice umbrella term. But to answer your question, the first thing that's really important, if someone has injured themselves and they have an acute injury, what is being done about that acute injury? What is the waiting time or waiting periods for a particular individual to see a clinician to have that acute pain managed? So we know that in specific countries, for example, I can even use the UK, is that a lot of people who have damaged themselves or hurt a particular area of the body are on the NHS there. And they have sometimes 18 week waiting periods to be seen by a physiotherapist or to be seen by an orthopedic surgeon. So what's happening in that time already is that that pain is not really being dealt with. There might be tissue healing taking place. However, is no navigation of that, of that tissue healing in the right direction. And with the tissue healing in the right direction or being navigated in the right direction through physiotherapists or skilled orthopedic surgeons, et cetera, et cetera, people who deal with pain, that is one of the main things initially that can stop acuteness becoming chronicity. But that's number one. You want to reduce waiting periods. Number two is mechanism of the pain. If you have a skilled clinician, whether it be a physiotherapist, physical therapist, same thing, orthopedic surgeon, pain anesthesiologist, neurologist, you've got to be able to equip yourself with the tools to understand pain mechanisms. Now, specifically in chronic pain, there are a variety of different mechanisms that could be causing the patient's pain. And you've also got to look at the pain through a biopsychosocial lens. So although there's multiple mechanisms physiologically and on a molecular level that could be causing the pain, 
whether it's in the peripheral nervous system, whether it's in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, whether it's in the brain and what's happening in the brain and everything that's going on, how the brain is interpreting the message, whether it's in the descending pathways, it's very important for a clinician to be able to identify the mechanism or mechanisms in plural, which is, which is, which is, is generally the case, to be able to manage the pain and stop the patient from going from acute to chronic. And if they are already starting to go into that chronic state, being skilled in your evaluation and examination is really important so that you can stop that chronicity. Now, I spoke about earlier on the biopsychosocial model. What's really, really important in that model is when I'm evaluating or have evaluated complex or chronic pain patients, I have my three bubbles on my piece of paper in front of me, and I have the bio part, it's in the bubble, it's overlapped by the psycho part, and then it's overlapped by the social part. Now, I spend a lot of time interviewing patients and addressing them on a subjective level to try and understand which component of the biopsychosocial model is mainly emphasized or seems to be um, probably enhancing the pain experience fully. So at certain times, a person might have 10% of that pain experience in the biological side of the bubble and 50% in the social side of the bubble and the remainder in the psychological component. And if you're able to address those different components, that should drive you to where your treatment should be going. You might not have to do any sort of manual hands-on therapy with the patient. You might just need to be able to set goals and work with them on a social level and get them through various pain management or chronic pain management strategies to be able to achieve their goals and get them back into normal social functioning despite the fact that they might have pain. So I've gone on a little bit based on your question and I've expanded a little bit, um, but what I wanted to just try and emphasize is that chronic pain is extremely complex. If we knew exactly why some people develop chronic pain and other people don't with the same injury, with the same treatment, well, you would be a multi-billionaire. So pain medicine is still trying to sort that out, but we certainly know, and in the past few years have come up with understanding the different neuroscientific mechanisms underlying pain, and that has helped us to manage pain. Mina, you mentioned that pain itself is more of a output rather than an input. So nociception would then be the input and pain would be the output. Why is it important for clinicians to understand the difference? That's a great question, Sean. So if we're talking about clinicians like physiotherapists, for example, physiotherapists tend to base most of their practice modalities on the periphery, on the tissue, right? And seem to ignore the spinal cord and the brain and the descending modulatory pathways, unfortunately. And that's because, unfortunately, in terms of education, and I hope it's going there, pain science education has unfortunately been limited. And now we understand a little bit more. But to answer your question is that a patient who's got chronic pain needs to understand most often it is not related to tissue injury. Now, nociceptors, like I said a little bit earlier on, 
are specific nerves that translate a message to the spinal cord and then up to the brain that there is something wrong at a particular area of the body or there's something potentially wrong at a specific area of the body. If there has been tissue damage, what tends to happen with tissue damage in terms of physiology, you obviously get an inflammatory mediated soup in that area. So there's a lot of inflammatory uh, chemicals and different uh, hormones being released in that area. All that the nociceptors are doing is sending a message to the spinal cord and up to the brain saying, hey, there's something going on at a specific area of the body. There are inflammatory chemicals there. There's something going on. It's not sending a message of pain to the brain. It's for the brain to decide based on a whole conglomeration of different factors whether this should be an experience of pain or not. Now, what's really important for chronic pain patients to understand and for clinicians to understand is that you do not have to have that inflammatory soup with all the different inflammatory mediators, pro-inflammatory mediators, bradykinin, etc., to still have your nociceptor sending a message to the spinal cord and up to the brain. Okay, so at that stage, there is no peripheral injury that requires manual therapy. However, clinicians still tend to do manual therapy at that area. But if you understand as a clinician, and the clinician can also explain to the patient that the nociceptors are still firing messages up to the brain, it's almost like the nociceptors are faulty. There's faulty wiring taking place, they're confused, and they're still sending action potentials up to the brain. The brain still has the capacity to say, ooh, danger, 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 or no danger, and that's that output of pain. As soon as you understand that as a clinician, number one, that you do not necessarily have to have the tissue damage or you do not have to have any inflammation in an area, well, then that focus of your intervention should definitely change. How should it change? Well, we've got to then focus on the central nervous system and we've got to focus on the nociceptors in terms of actually calming down the nociceptors. So I use um, a metaphor often to explain to other clinicians when I'm teaching clinicians or students or patients as well, the, the metaphor of an alarm system. And we all, most of us have alarm systems in our cars and in South Africa, most people have alarm systems in their homes and a good working alarm system will go off when there is definite potential danger. So someone trying to break in and at a specific threshold, the alarm system goes off, window smashing, door being broken down, that alarm system goes off, and so you are warned that there is danger, right? What happens if that alarm system in your house or the car is faulty, right? And all that's happening is, is a very, very low threshold stimulus, like a drop of water on the window, or just an ant crawling up the door, and then the alarm system goes off, that becomes a faulty alarm system and it needs fixing. The same can be looked at in terms of the nociceptive system and the central nervous system and the brain's output. You want a normal 
working alarm system. So that nociceptive system should be normally working. It should only send a signal to the spinal cord and to the brain when there is a specific threshold input that is causing the nociceptors to fire. If that alarm system or the nociceptors, right, are faulty, they're going to carry on sending messages without any sort of noxious stimulus or with a very low threshold stimulus. And that's what we call allodynia and hyperalgesia. And that's really definitive of chronic pain. So I hope giving that metaphor is a nice way to understand how a person with chronic pain who has nociplastic or central sensitization taking place, why that happens um, with regards to an alarm system or the processing of noxious or innoxious stimuli. Marnan, am I correct in saying then that pain is an experience of a conscious brain? Uh, yes, I would always argue that, so I never use the term, how is your pain to a patient? I always use the term, what is your pain perception or what is your pain experience? So I love the word experience because everyone experiences pain in a very, very different way. And if you look at most pain outcome measures, besides the pain intensity, uh, the visual analog scale, which for me is just with chronic pain, really not necessary to even be using, that's just showing the intensity of the pain. But if you look at most pain outcome measures, they're looking at the pain experience, right? On a conscious level. So for example, if you use the pain catastrophizing questionnaire or you're using the pain self-efficacy questionnaire or quality of life questionnaires or the tamper scale of kinesophobia, all those scales are looking at the pain experience on a very conscious level. The patient is able to say to you, well, I've stopped going to the gym because I'm scared that I'm going to hurt myself more or I've limited my work because I'm, I'm unable to sit for too long because my pain comes on or my whole social life has been affected because I'm scared going out. I'm not going to manage to get through a whole dinner party because of my pain. So it is more so than often, I would say 99% of the time, a conscious experience. Sometimes people are I wouldn't say not aware of their pain. Most people are aware of their pain, but they don't understand their pain fully on a conscious level. As soon as you bring it into consciousness through what I call therapeutic neuroscience education, patients really understand their pain much better and understand that it is not necessarily, again, like I keep saying, related to any specific damage, but it's more about a faulty wiring system or faulty alarm system in your body that needs to be governed and needs to be taken care of. So it's also inherently personal and completely subjective. Uh, and if I'm understanding correctly, from when we were students up till now, we still have no real reliable objective measure for pain at all, uh, with it being such a subjective and, and personal experience, uh, more so than something that is quantifiable. That's correct, Sean. I mean, it is a very subjective experience. You could have 10 people in front of you, 
all complaining of lower back pain, right? They all had the exact same mechanism. Let's say they all had a disc herniation at the exact same level, L4, L5, whatever it is, at the exact same moment in time. But each one of those people have a very different pain experience. Person A could be like, okay, well, that happened. I had a disc herniation, I had pain, but I, you know, I wasn't scared of it. I went back and I went back to the gym and I went back to work, et cetera, et cetera. And the next person could have the complete opposite experience and be scared to move and be scared to do anything and be bed bound. So it's a very subjective experience. However, that being said, in terms of objectivity versus subjectivity, you want to try and make it as objective for the patient as possible. And that's why pain outcome measures that specifically look at the pain experience, pain perceptions, all of the outcome measures I me uh, mentioned earlier, plus a whole conglomeration of other outcome measures are really useful for patients during treatment because at the initial assessment, they might score badly, let's say, in the quality of life questionnaire, let's say the SF36, and they score really badly, okay? However, down the line, if you repeat that questionnaire during treatment, well, correct treatment for chronic pain, and then at the end of treatment, and they see, wow, okay, that SF36 questionnaire, I'm scoring better and better and better and better. My quality of life is changing. That becomes an objective measure for a patient. So for me, what I generally say to pain patients or chronic or complex pain patients is the goal is to get you back to doing the things you used to do despite the fact that you've got pain. So getting the patients on the same page as you in terms of expectations is critical from the word go. And if you say to them, I'm here to get rid of your pain, you're setting them up for failure and hopelessness and helplessness. But if you get them in their goal setting and their personal goal setting through smart goal setting and realistic goals, you're setting them up for success and you have short-term goals and medium-term goals and you have long-term goals. And that becomes an objective measure for a patient. So goals can become objective measures, specifically if they are set according to the SMART principles. Obviously, SMART being specific, M measurable, A being attainable, R being realistic, T being time-based. So all those things make it quite scientific and objective. And so you can have some sort of objective measures in terms of a patient's response to their pain rather than what is their pain. I hope that makes sense. That is a perfect answer to the question. Thanks, Martin. Excellent. Thanks, Martin. In one of your answers just now, you mentioned pain neuroscience education as part of your treatment. Can you tell us a little bit about what that entails and how you can use that when treating someone in pain? Sure. So I've termed it therapeutic pain neuroscience education, TPNE. And the reason why I've termed it that is that it is therapeutic. If you use the term pain neuroscience education, a lot of people will think, well, okay, you're teaching another clinician about pain science or you're teaching students about pain science. But the term therapeutic pain neuroscience education straight away directs you towards, okay, this is some sort of 
therapeutic usage with your patients. So what it entails is really everything that we know about nociception, everything we know about injury or no injury, everything we understand about pain definitions according to the IASP and how that fits into neuroscience. So we work our way within therapeutic pain neuroscience education from the periphery through the nociceptors to the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, what takes place at the dorsal horn. And we know that that's where probably most of the nociplastic or central sensitization changes take place there because of your glutamate, because of your glycine being released there, substance P. You've got various receptors there like your NK1 receptors, your AMPA receptors, etc., and your NMDA receptors. And those are very, very important receptors and neurotransmitters that I mentioned before in terms of creating the chronic pain experience. And then we move up towards the brain and we spend a bit of time in the brain so that patients understand how the brain facilitates the pain output and what it is in the brain that allows a patient to have a pain output or lack of pain output. So when we're talking about the brain, we're really speaking about a multitude of areas in the brain, which I call the pain matrix or the pain neuromatrix um, that light up in response to pain. So for example, with functional MRIs, we teach patients that functional MRIs are a big thing that have happened over the past numerous years when researching pain. And what it shows is there is not one area in the brain that lights up in response to a noxious stimulus or potentially noxious stimulus, but there is multiple areas that light up in the brain. And all those areas in the brain communicate with each other and cause what we call a pain signature or pain neurotag for each individual and each individual has their own pain neurotag or pain signature or pain memory in the brain. And based on the brain's mechanisms, cognitions, beliefs, expectations, um, cultural beliefs, there's so many different things that are happening in the brain with regards to what's happening with the nociceptive input that the output is going to be different for, for individual to individual. And then we teach patients about the descending modulatory pathways, which we know could be inhibitory, i.e. reduce the pain, or excitatory, increase the pain. And we're going to quite a lot of detail regarding pa uh, therapeutic pain neuroscience education. I always say that I would rather teach patients more detail than less detail. I think that there is evidence to show that when you are doing therapeutic pain neuroscience education with patients, the more detail you give them underlying the neuroscience, the better they, they do afterwards than less detail. Less detail can come across often as patronizing as well, and you certainly don't want to patronize your patients. The more detail you give them, the more they understand how complex pain is. But what the whole point of therapeutic pain neuroscience education is, is to reduce the fear and the threat of their pain and for them to understand that their pain is not necessarily related to tissue damage, 
but actually it's about a fault in the wiring of their nervous system. So, for example, at the moment, I run a lot of pain management programs, group-based pain management programs, individual programs. I spend, I would say, eight hours minimum just teaching pain neuroscience education to patients. And they love it. They kind of get goosebumps often. You can see a patient kind of suddenly like having a button being pushed and they're like, oh, that makes so much sense to me. Is that why I sometimes feel my pain at these moments in time? And the answer will often be yes or no. And it's really liberating for patients knowing that the pain is not in their mind, which often people have made them believe, oh, please, you don't have an injury, you don't have pain, it's all in your mind. But as soon as they know it's not in their mind, but it's on a molecular level, and the brain is involved, it really reduces their fear and their threat, and they start catastrophizing less. So I emphasize education, neuroscience education greatly. I don't think any um, healthcare provider who specializes in pain should exclude that from treatment ever. I think that's your one of your most important go-tos in terms of treatment. I hope that answers your question. <laughs> it does. No, that was excellent. That was, that was brilliant. And then Marlon, uh, just the last one. So you are busy with your PhD at the University of Miami. You've had a couple of papers that have been accepted for publication recently. Can you give us a brief overview of your research and what we can expect when those papers are published? Yeah, sure. So the, uh, these papers, yeah, like you said, have been uh, accepted. The ones going into the Journal of Pain Medicine, the other, the Journal of Pain Practice. And I think they'll be published probably in December, January, they'll come up. Uh, the one paper, both of these papers I'm talking about right now are meta-analyses. And um, the one is a meta-analysis of actually the efficacy of therapeutic pain neuroscience education. And what I really wanted to understand was, well, we know that it works and we know that it is efficacious and we know that people come out of, of pain neuroscience education with better outcomes to what they had when they went into it. But what I wanted to know is what are the factors in therapeutic pain neuroscience education that allow for better outcomes? And so you call that a moderator analysis or predictor analysis. And the moderators I looked at specifically in uh, therapeutic pain neuroscience education was, was it single disciplined or was it multidisciplinary? Was it taught by one type of clinician or was it executed by a multitude of different clinicians? How many sessions were there, for example? Was it therapeutic neuroscience education by itself in conglomeration with other therapies? Or was it just by itself, for example? Was it done in groups, in group management, or was it done one-on-one? -on -one? And interestingly enough, the paper, for example, showed that yes, Therapeutic pain neuroscience education is efficacious for all outcome measures. It has a significant effect. But the really interesting thing that I found that blended its way into the second meta-analysis was that it was only group therapy in terms of all those moderators I mentioned that had a significant impact 
on, therapeutic, on therapeutic pain neuroscience education that caused it to have positive outcomes. So sessions was not, the amount of sessions was not significant. Uh, the amount of healthcare providers was not significant. It was actually when it was done in groups that displayed a significant effect. And that blended itself into the next paper where I thought, okay, I'm gonna take group-based pain management programs. I'm gonna do the same thing. I'm going to do a meta-analysis. I'm gonna see what are the outcomes of group-based pain management therapy? We know generally based on previous literature that it has really good outcomes, but I wanted to reinvestigate it by putting all these multitudes of papers together and putting all the statistics together and see, well, does it have actually a good outcome? And it does. So we found that it does, thank God, because I believe in it. Um, but what I did at the same time is with the previous paper, I wanted to look at different moderators underlying um, uh, underlying group-based treatment. So I wanted to look at content versus format. So moderators that uh, that worked under under content was uh, things like graded activity, CBT, graded exposure, pacing. Uh, pain neuroscience education, different treatment modalities that you would use in group treatment. So a lot of psychoeducational treatment, um, as well as exercise. And then under format, I wanted to look at, well, is there something to do with the format of group therapy that plays a role in the outcomes? Is it something to do with how many sessions, how many people in each group? Where is it done? For how long? How many minutes should each session be uh, be done, et cetera, et cetera? And there were quite a number of moderators around those two those two items that I looked at. And what came back was that it is the format that shows significant effects rather than the content in group treatment. And I'm not surprised by that. I hypothesized that because what my research in my PhD is actually doing is looking at therapeutic contextual factors in treatment that allow for patients to have better outcomes from treatment. So format variables in the second meta-analysis fall under therapeutic contextual factors. So therapeutic contextual factors might be the therapeutic alliance. How do patients have a relationship with their clinician? Is it a good alliance? Is it a good relationship? Is there trust? Is it things like that? What are patients' previous experiences with their pain, their internal experiences? What's the contextual factors like? Where is this group being done? Does it feel very clinical? Have they had bad experiences in the past? So these papers have lend themselves towards where my main dissertation is lying and that's in terms of therapeutic contextual factors having a role in terms of placebo mechanisms in terms of pain responses. And we know through the literature that these therapeutic contextual factors seem to light up the same areas of the brain that light up with normal placebo treatments, which means that you're having an analgesic response purely based on therapeutic contextual factors, which I call the inactive ingredients in a treatment, versus the active ingredients in a treatment, which would be the content stuff. 
I'm not saying content's not important. It obviously is important because I've already said therapeutic pain neuroscience education is important. But what I'm saying is the context and the therapeutic context really needs to be harnessed to have your most efficacious outcomes in pain management. And just to summarize, the, 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 the therapeutic context or therapeutic context variables um, or factors seem to play a huge role in terms of treatment with patients with chronic pain or any chronic diseases or illnesses even, um, based on the fact that it has the same mechanisms that placebo has in terms of analgesic mechanisms. And it just makes your treatment overall more efficacious. And I think clinicians need to start harnessing those therapeutic contextual factors way more in their treatment from the time that the patient walks into the reception and how they're greeted by the receptionist to the time they sit down to the time that they call into the treatment room and to the time that they leave the treatment room. All those factors and good experiences certainly help with the outcomes uh, that are being looked at with chronic pain patients. That's tr truly fascinating, actually. Thank you. <laughs> Incredibly sure. fascinating. So, Manin, uh, thank you for your time today. If listeners wanted to hear more or read up on more of the work that you're doing or get in touch with you, where should they look? So, obviously, they can get in touch with, get in touch with me uh, on my email, which is maninrum at gmail.com. They can also get in touch with me on LinkedIn. So, I have a LinkedIn profile. Uh, just put in Mon and Rum. I don't think there's many Mon and Rums around. Um, I'll pop up there. And just through, uh, yeah, email, LinkedIn, all my details are there. And I'll be very willing to obviously do more talks if that's needed or answer any other questions if there's any burning questions from anyone that's listened to this podcast or you guys as well if you have any other questions related or not related. <laughs> Expect some emails. <laughs> yeah. that's all we have time for in this episode the next episode will be related to surgeries of the hip complex 